so much for tuning in and welcome everyone hope you're well i'm your host ben lively and you're listening to shaken awake episode number 24 i just wanted to thank you for tuning in wherever you are and whatever you're doing right this very moment and as always i promise you another great show but more than anything my hope for you today and always is that you have an actual encounter with the lord he's always right there beside you so let's get ready to invite him in with us right here right now and allow him to speak directly to our heart and minds. So here goes. Here is today's topic. How and what are you doing to prepare for eternity? So God and the Holy Spirit have done a perfect job convicting me of just about everything in my life, from what to correct, what to give up, what to begin, and where and when I fall short. One one significant conviction that I have had which is what today's episode is all about. And I find it's imperative for the Christian world to to realize as well is what we spend our time on is often the opposite of what God wants us to do. So I come from a place of, uh, of truth today, not of condemnation or finger pointing or shaming, but of love and of God's truth. And as I look around at all those years, the decades of my life and those I surrounded myself with, I have been convicted of the sheer percentage of my life that held zero meaning to my future in eternity. In fact, it was setting me up for eternity in hell, if nothing more or less. Had I been a truly saved Christian, my actions that weren't necessarily sinful would still have amounted to nothing to help God's kingdom. And my, my purpose for this life was myself and my family, but nothing for God or his family. Nothing I nothing occupied my life with honoring him or worshiping him or helping to populate his kingdom and depopulate hell, nor spread the gospel. I had placed zero value in providing value for God and his kingdom, nor my eternity with him. The way I was convicted, it was in my heart. God showed me the sheer amount of time, the blood, the sweat, energy, the interest, and the worship of the things of this world to occupy my time with. Build the perfect nest egg and the perfect future on this earth, right? Making it and life as comfortable and easygoing and as pleasant and peaceful as possible for myself. So my God was me. The worst part was the devil had me content as could be, just living a life that I saw nothing wrong with. He had me fooled and on my way to hell. Thank God and the Holy Spirit for pulling me out of the enemy's flames. I you know, I was in a pattern. It was it was I was in a rhythm in a spiritually blind funk. You know, get up, work most of the day into the evening, relax, go watch TV, go on social media till it was time to go to sleep, and then sleep, rinse, repeat, right? Do, doing the things I had to do, not doing the things I'm put on this earth to do. There's a huge difference between the two. 
One is living for self. The other is living for God. The problem is the world up until now continues to offer more convenience, more luxury, more fun, more entertainment, more pleasure, more options than ever before. To say it's easy to stay safe, secure, happy, uh, comfortable, and complacent would be the understatement of the century, no? You know, the only time I worked hard and long hours was to benefit me. The love of money, what it could buy, but the money is the root of all evil, and so is the love of self, as well as idolatry. And in today's world, it caters more to these than it ever has It's harder to find the one of God to a non-believer or lukewarm Christian than ever in the history of the world. When everything around you is pleasurable and inviting, who wants to, to be sucked up into roles or righteous living and put away self for the sake of a savior? You see, what they don't realize is everything you ever wanted and more that you didn't even realize is possible or real is all and only found in Jesus. Everything everyone wants, ultimately, is to feel loved, to feel appreciated, to feel valued, to feel true peace, true joy, true happiness, and and which doesn't fade but only grows stronger. And like the saying goes, everyone wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die. But here's a news update. Everyone dies. But only a very few will enter heaven. Oh, now the saying has a different twist, doesn't it? It sure does. What we do now, today, what we do tomorrow, and the next day, who we choose to follow and worship dictates our eternity. So what we're really talking about today is how to run the race that's set before us, no? So let's combine what we know and don't know with what God's word says about this since we are all uh, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us that's Hebrews 12 2 uh, 12 1 I'm sorry what kind of race do believers run and and who sets the race parameters is it a, is it a race that we define and purpose for ourselves you know, the, the passage in question draws from the foot races in ancient e- uh, Israel, uh, Greek, uh, Greece, and, and there's the amphitheaters of Rome. And it was written to encourage and challenge believers to persevere in their faith, especially in the midst of trial and, and persecution. And it goes into further detail in 2 Timothy 2.15, Hebrews 10.36, and Hebrews 12.7. So athletes in a race were surrounded at that time by rows and rows of spectators pictured for us as quote unquote a great cloud of witnesses the witnesses of the believers race are listed in the in the previous chapter of Hebrews the men and women of God whose faithful lives were recorded in the old testament you know these, these saints persevered despite unbelievable persecution and cruelty in, read about it in Hebrews eleven thirty three to 38. And they were commended for their faithfulness. You know, whether the saints of Hebrews 11 are actually watching us run our race today is, is in question. The point of the, the passage is that their testimony lives on. 
Their steadfast uh, fast faith bears witness to the promise of Jesus Christ. It urges us to follow their example and quote unquote run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Again, Hebrews 12, 1. The race then is the Christian life. It's your life. It's my life. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And we're, we're called to stay the course and remain faithful to the end. Paul used this same imagery near the end of his life. And he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's 2 Timothy 4, 7. So the steadfastness of the Old Testament witnesses speaks to the believe, uh, to uh, believers today of the rewards of staying in the race, of never giving up. A marathon is a strenuous test of fitness and endurance, right? The, the race set before us requires faith. It requires stamina, commitment, and, and discipline in order to live faithfully. So the race is set before us. We didn't select the course. It's God who established it. This race we run for Christ. We stay the course in spite of the trials and persecutions, as it says in Hebrews 12, 4 to 11. And as we run, we must fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's Hebrews 12, 2. Because he perfectly finished his race. He is the focus of our lives. You know, we, we look away from all distractions because he is already at the finish line. And you can read more about that in Lamentations 3, 25, Matthew 6, 33, and Romans 2, 7. So the race demands that we do away with everything that hinders, right? So that's sin and whatever else threatens our relationship with God. As stated in Hebrews 12, 1, anything that will slow us down or trip us up must be cast off. The apostle Paul says to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And that's Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. So with the encouragement of those who have gone on before, we rid ourselves of thoughts, attitudes, and habits that delay our progress. So seeing that the race God set out uh, for us is a lifelong marathon, we must commit ourselves to run to the very end. So a daily regimen of, of prayer, of worship, of reading God's word, and just examining our lives for impediments, it'll help. We will persevere by maintaining a Christ-like attitude, even in the midst of trials. As it states in 1 Peter 2, 21, 4, 1, and 1 John 2, 6. So no matter how long the race may be, we keep our eyes on Jesus. The champion who initiates and perfects our faith. That's Hebrews 12, 2. There is joy awaiting. And the Bible mentions rewards in heaven multiple times. Matthew 5, 12, Luke 6, 23 and 35, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 14 and 9, 18. But why are rewards necessary? Like, won't being in heaven with God be enough? Experiencing him, his glory and the joys of heaven will be so wonderful. It's hard to understand why extra rewards would be needed. 
And also since our faith rests in Christ's righteousness instead of our own, as in Romans 3, 21 to 26, it seems kind of strange that our works would then merit reward, right? God will give rewards in heaven or the judgment seat of Christ based on our faithfulness in service to him. Go ahead and read. It's 2 Corinthians 5.10. The rewards will show the reality of our sonship. It says that in Galatians 4.7. And the justice of God, Hebrews 6.10. God will give rewards in heaven in order to fulfill the law of sowing and reaping. You can find more about that in Galatians 6.7 and 9. And he's going to make good on his promise that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Like it says in 1 Corinthians 15.58. One reason for the rewards in heaven is the fact that Jesus shares his reward with us. Paul said, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's Galatians 2.20. Our lives are hidden with Christ, who's seated at the right hand of God. That's Colossians 3.1-4. So we die with him and we live with him and we share in his joy. Romans 6, 8, Matthew 25, 21 explains more. So in heaven, we will dwell with him, as it says in John 14, 1 to 3, and our lives are inextricably linked with Christ's. The reward he receives is shared with all of us. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. That's, that's Romans 8, 17. So our rewards in heaven depend on the goodness and power of God. Through Christ's re- resurrection, we, we gain an inheritance in heaven and on earth. Our faith is tested and results in praise and glory and honor when Christ is revealed. Just like it, in, it states in 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9. The things we do in this life are, are only permanent and that is carried with us into heaven if they're built on the foundation which is Christ and that's 1 Corinthians 3 11 to 15 so the rewards we gain in heaven are not like the rewards we we earn here on earth we we tend to think in uh, material terms mansions jewels etc but these things are only representations of the true rewards we will gain in heaven so like a, like a child who wins a spelling bee treasures that trophy he or she receives, not for the sake of the trophy itself, but for what that trophy means. So likewise, any rewards or honor we gain in heaven will be precious to us because they carry the weight and the meaning of our relationship with God and because they remind us of what he did through us on earth. In this, in this way, rewards in heaven glorify God. And then they provide us with joy, peace, and wonder as we consider God's work in us and through us. The closer we were to God during this life, the more centered on him and aware of him, the more dependent on him, the more desperate for his mercy, the more there will be to celebrate. We're like characters in a story who suffer doubt, loss, and fear, wondering if we'll ever really have our heart's desire. And then when the happy ending comes and desire is fulfilled, there comes a completion. The story wouldn't be satisfying without that completion. Rewards in heaven 
are the completion of our earthly story. And those rewards will be eternally satisfying, like it says in Psalms 1611. So does God punish us then for, for our sins? Well, God no longer punishes us for our sin because Jesus took that punishment. The Bible says bad things that can happen to us are a result of God's discipline. They're not a punishment for sin. Rather, they're a, a correction as a, as a parent would correct a child. You know, what did I do to deserve this? Is, is this my fault? You know, when faced with hardship, many of us ask ourselves these questions. On the other hand, some of us voice the following. You know, it doesn't matter what I do. God will forgive me. That was me for 41 years. Doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're a good person. These questions all point to a more fundamental issue. Does God punish us for our sin? Well, what's the punishment for sin? For the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 tells us. The Bible's very clear. Those who sin earn eternal punishment. The holiness of God is like a consuming fire such that the impure can't stand in his presence and live. It states more about that in Hebrews 12, 29 and Exodus 33, 20. The holiness and justice of God require that sin be punished and the sinner be separated from God. However, God is also a loving God. He, his desire is to be with us. This is why Romans six twenty three has a second part, which states, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So God poured out the punishment for our sin upon Jesus. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, says Isaiah 53, 6. The Bible tells us if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's Romans 10, 9. Therefore, for those who accept Christ as their Lord and Savior, the punishment for sin is no longer upon us. God no longer punishes us for our sin. Jesus took that punishment for you and I. Well, you know, do bad things still happen because we sin? You know, if, if through Jesus we're forgiven of all sin, does that mean we can now sin with impunity? Not quite. The Bible refers to the discipline of the Lord multiple times. Proverbs 3, 11 to 12 says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Hebrews 12 explains this in greater depth. Sometimes it says bad things can happen to us or a result of God's discipline. They're, they're not retribution or a punishment for sin. Rather, they're a correction Again, as a parent would correct a child. They're not intended to break down, but rather to increase the holiness in the believer. It states more about that in Hebrews 12.10. There are also societal or earthly consequences of sin. Just because God forgives us of murder doesn't mean a murderer doesn't have to serve time in jail. Some negative experiences will flow naturally out of poor choices, such as... Uh, financial hardship after gambling away money. You know, these aren't God's punishment. They're a natural result of our actions. Well, then is everything bad that happens to me because God is disciplining me? 
Well, there's several reasons people might suffer that have nothing to do with discipline. You know, showing God's glory. In John 9, Jesus and his disciples encounter a man who has been blind from birth. And the disciples ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And that's John 9, 2. Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sin, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. How about that? John 9, 3. The disciples were operating under a common assumption of the time that any suffering one experienced was the result of sin that hadn't been confessed and or um, uh, atoned for. Jesus gave an alternate reason. A person... You and I might suffer so that God would be glorified. A person might suffer for a long time or for a time so that they might experience an even greater good in the future. Another reason is uh, to improve us and bring us closer to God. You know, when times are good, it's easy to forget about our need for God, even though he is the one sustaining the very world we live in. It's easy to become complacent in our relationship with him. Paul writes, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. It's Romans 5, 3 to 4. So uh, suffering helps us to lean on God and improves our character. And, And therefore, sometimes suffering is for this reason rather than as the result of any poor choices. It's also a result of following Christ. In John 15, 18, Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Christians face discrimination. We we face persecution and even death for our faith. In this case, the bad things that happen are because the Christian is doing something right. Jesus warned that a sinful world would hate those who were not of this world. It's John 17, 16. And then Paul encourages us to rejoice in these sufferings, as noted in, in Romans 5, 3 to 4. And it's also a natural result of a fallen world. You know, in the end, the reason suffering exists at all is indeed because of sin. This sin isn't necessarily our personal sin. However, it's the sin of mankind. So we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sonship, the redemption of our bodies. That's Romans 8, 22 to 23. So creation itself is broken because of Adam and Eve's original sin. Natural disasters, disease, famine, all these things exist because of a broken world. And suffering from these shouldn't be assumed to be the judgment of God. Rather, they're the realities that we face living in an imperfect world. Another reality of living in a world corrupted by sin is that we can suffer for uh, or from the sins of others, whether through violence, selfishness, or injustice. Suffering caused by the sins of others is not our fault, and it also shouldn't be assumed to come as discipline or punishment from God. But there is a final punishment. Eventually, all the wicked will be cast into eternal punishment. That's 2 Thessalonians 1 and 9. But those who trusted in Christ will receive eternal life. That's Matthew 25, 46. 
So God does punish us for our sins. His justice is real. However, his desire is to be with us. That's why he provided Jesus. Those who accept Christ need not fear punishment. And one day, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Amen. That's Revelations 21.4. So how can we apply this to our life today? How can we live a life that's pleasing to God? And before I wrap up, I just, I felt led to share some passages. So before you tune out and hear what next week's episode is going to be on, let's take a look at what the word of God says about pleasing God. Because what more importance is there in life than to please God? There, There isn't anything. And who better to hear it from on how to please him than, well, him and his word. So 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Galatians 1 to 10. For, now, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Romans 8.8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. See, these are the verses I never read, I was never taught, and I didn't live by. And until I read them, I lived my life the way I live my life because I didn't know these verses exist or existed. And now that I know they do, how can I, how can I deny them? Like Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may dis- discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 1 John three twenty two, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Hebrews 13, 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Romans 12, 1 to 2, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Psalms 19, 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. John 8, 29, and he who has sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Acts 5, 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. It's never complete. That's running the race. How about Ephesians 5, 8 to 10, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I love this one. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 1, 9 to 10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Philippians 2, 12 to 16. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Amen. I'm going to have a lot more of these verses posted in the show notes. Um, they're, they're, They're wonderful. The only way to know them is to read them. Dwell in the word of God and uh, reserve some time every day to uh, to really dive into the to the Word of God. So, you know, guys, my final question to you today is then this: What can you do to better use this life that God gave you to live for Him? That's why He gave you this life. I'll repeat that question: What can you do to better use this life God gave you? to live for him. My final statement is this. You know, in the grand scheme of eternity, which is final, which is real, and by the way, which is fast approaching, what greater value is there on earth than to live this quick life for the one who has prepared for you your eternal home based on his love, his mercy, his grace, and the fruit you bore while you lived for him on this earth. Everything else is utterly and eternally meaningless and worthless. So before we end today's show, I just wanted to thank you all again for tuning in. I hope you were touched by God through today's message and scriptures. And I'd like to ask you a favor. Only if you've received any value out of today's show, would you tell at least one person you know? Just call them, text them, email them, IM them, talk to them. Tell them to give the show a listen. And you can check out the show at shaken-awake.com. You can email me at ben at shaken-awake.com. Or you can call or text me directly for any reason. 407-493-3208. Again, that's 407-493-3208. And if you have ideas for the show, let me know. So next week, tune in next Sunday evening or whenever you're able as we dive into another important topic, which will be when your busy hands become the devil's workshop. 
Next week's episode is another powerful and do not miss episode. Thanks for joining. And until next week, take great care of yourself and each other. And God bless you all. 